Um, so today um, we have uh, Patrick Rosal and, and Jean Valentine who are going to read their poems and uh, discuss each other's poems and we hope to have a very nice informal conversational experience in which the poets share their appreciations of each other's poetry. Uh, Patrick, uh, we're lucky to have him as a member of our poetry committee here at Helix uh, for our poetry programming. Uh, he's the author of three full-length poetry collections, most recently Bone Shepherds, named a notable book by the National Book Critics Circle and the Academy of American Poets. He's also won the Association of Asian American Studies Book Award, Global Filipino Literary Award, and the Asian American Writers Workshop Members' Choice Award. His poems and essays have been published in Grantland, Tin House, Harvard Review, Language for a New Century, Best American Poetry, and many others. He's a founding co-editor of Some Call It Ballin, a sports quarterly, and is a former Fulbright Fellow. He teaches on the faculty of Rutgers University Camden's MFA program. And Jean Valentine, I think, is the author of a dozen books of poetry. Um, the first being Dream Barker, which won the Yale Younger Poets Prize, up through um, her Door on the Mountain, New and Collected Poems, which won the um, National Book Award for Poetry. And I think uh, Break the Glass is the most recent book. Um, she's a recipient of the 2009 Wallace Stevens Award from the Academy of American Poets. She's taught at Sarah Lawrence, NYU, and Columbia. So the format for this afternoon um, will be that um, Patrick's going to read some poems, and Jean's going to have a conversation with him about them. <laughs> and then I think Jean is going to read her Lucy sequence, and Patrick is going to uh, talk with her about his uh, appreciation of that series of poems. Patrick will read a couple more poems. Jean will respond, and then I think Jean may finish with a couple of new poems. Is that still your plan? Super. And then we'll have time for the audience to comment. <coughs> so let's begin. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, for being here, too. Um, I'm fighting what I hope is the tail end of a cold. Um, I'm used to very energetic readings, but I'll muster whatever I can for today. Uh, A lot of the things that I've been interested in lately have been, uh, well, I've always been interested in my family history, but uh, more and more I've been trying to place that in terms of a global history. Uh, my parents are from the Philippines. This poem is called Delenda Undone. And so we've all been told to shut up. Don't talk, they say, too fast, too loud or for too long. Don't take too much time trying to tell the truth. But this is my work, to break out among strangers into laughter. How I've watched small children, for example, fill with the lucky gust a poem can ride into the mere stillness of a room and dance. For that, I am always, as now, grateful. My father tells me in his seminary days during the Japanese occupation, most of the priests who ran that school were German, 
The boys then were to speak only in Latin and would surely be slapped three Sundays back if heard speaking the language of my father's country, which is a beautiful country and a beautiful language, and which has a curious word for being so suddenly seized by affection. You clench every muscle from your eyelids to your toes for wanting to hold a loved one tight, to squeeze one and kiss one so deep, you place yourself and your beloved on the brink of physical harm. There's no word for this in English. No word for those small provinces of silence or for the kind of love that will trouble that silence into music. My work is trying to find the very word rippling in my body, which is a woman's body, my mother's, and a man's body, my father's, and nowhere to be found in the languages that have conquered the land of my ancestors. On the outskirts of every empire, there are man-made lakes large enough to receive with ease 100 villages worth of bones tossed into them. This is a fact. There are more than 7 million Ilocanos in the Philippines, maybe a million in diaspora. All of us at one time or another have been told to shut up, don't talk too loud, too slow, or for too long. In Saudi Arabia, in Madrid, in Tokyo, in Milan, on Bowery, near the foot of First Street, we've been told this. Some of us have been famous liars. Ferdinand, for example, who married another liar, Imelda. And my grandfather, Capitan of the Barrio, who claimed to kick the shit bare-fisted and single-handedly out of 14 ruffians in the small barangay of Santo Tomas. Actually, he kicked the shit out of five. Nine ran away. These are not lies. This is the truth. I'm not wealthy. I can't buy space or time on billboards or websites. The name I inherit doesn't part columns in the city's daily journal. My family comes from a long line of farmers. My cousins scrub their chopping blocks with salt. They shush the goats before they kill them. So Santo Tomas is a barangay, essentially a barrio. And um, the, bar the barangay that my mom comes from is Santo Tomas. I was born and raised in New Jersey. Um, and I, uh, I went to the Philippines for the first time when I was 14. Um, but I didn't go back for almost 25 years. So this is a, this is a, a welcoming poem, or poem about how I got welcomed to the Philippines after 25 years. Bienvenida Santo Tomas. In the middle of my uncle's yard, a goat bound at the hooves wags its tongue. I've traveled 10,000 miles to be welcomed home by a town that knows me only by my middle name and photos sent by post more than 25 years ago. And there is an old man from the foothills of the barrio's far edge who has heard my Uncle Charlie drag this small beast to the block, heard the news by music, the bottles, the banging, the laughter inside the slaughter. The old man limps the half mile by foot up the long dirt road, unshod, a ratty tank top, a brand new Vegas cap, a cut black strip of inner tube draped around his neck. And in front of him, he's rolling the whole way 
a common jug on its side, emptied of its vinegar, dusty, immense, to his hip in height and three times the old man's girth. My uncle is strumming the guts out of his ukulele when the old man arrives and sets the huge jug upright, pulls the bike tube off his nape and stretches it across the jar's massive ceramic yawn, holding the rubber strip in place with one big muddy toe and on the downbeat of the first measure of the second chorus, he joins my uncle in the kind of mooing these beloved geezers swear has several times tricked a field of blossoms into bloom. The old man plucking from the makeshift bass, not so much a moan, but a pulse that ranges a full octave into each man's chest. The sinews of the old-timer's arm straining, the long muscle of his back taut, his quadricep, his calves, his black foot pumping blood into his whole awful body, his maw flashing every one of his seven good teeth to heaven. And if a man become part of a giant, the song of a giant, each one of us laughing like a giant. If each one of us fulfill the exact measure of a man, and if the goat at the same time is singing as it's dying among men who are singing and dying, the youngest cousin among us, butcher, slaughterer, elbow deep in the animal's belly, does not sing. The carcass, bloodlet now, also silent, as if its stillness were a source of music too. The way in death one becomes all the sounds one cannot make, the sum total of everything the living cannot say. Sometimes we have to sing just to figure out what we cannot say. about your poems. <laughs> <laughs> I love your poems. <laughs> Thanks, Jean. <laughs> and it's great to sit here beside you and hear them. Usually I'm over there uh, hearing them, and it's so nice to be near you. Oh, thank you. And uh, I, was, I was thinking, reading them, you know, the weeks coming up to now when we would be here, that um, I, can't, I, I can't really... Having heard you read, I can't read these without hearing your voice. And it's so, it's such a gift. Even if I don't have it really in, in you, you being in the room, but you, the voice is so, as you can hear, the voice is so present in everything Pat writes. And it's so important. And one thing I want to ask you is, probably been asked this before, but um, when you're writing, do you talk it while you're writing it? Um, yeah, I think that there's a, I think that there's a sort of, uh, you could call it a collaboration between my, my voice out loud and my interior voice. Yeah. And so um, I don't know that I necessarily read it while I'm writing it down or composing, but I certainly, sometimes I will say something and I'll stop to record it, yeah, yeah. and then I'll read it again, and then, it, so it becomes, yeah. it's like, 
it's like kind of transubstantiation between sound and ink, right? And yeah. it goes back and forth between those two substances. Yeah. Um, I think that's more what my, my process is yeah. like, but yeah. the out loud part feels very important to me. Yeah. It's important yeah. to you too though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wonder if it's important to every poet, but I, I hear, um, I hear it, it's, what you've said is perfect for me too, I think, but not the way I read, you know, as you know. But I hear the voice inside, you know, and then I put it down. But I wondered if you actually, you know, talk to yourself like Hamlet or somebody. <laughs> well, I, I love hearing you read. It's wonderful. Um, it's beautiful. And I loved that you had this verse, I guess it is, by Neruda in the front of your book. You feel like reading that to the folks? <laughs> I could do it, yeah. I don't know if you've had a chance to read that, all of you, but it's, it's wonderful to hear that voice, too. Um, so, uh, it's slipping for me now. My, my mind is... Um, I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, I'll read, I'll read the verse. Um, it's from Heights of Machu Picchu. I can't remember which section it is, though. Show me your blood and your furrows. Tell me I was punished here because the jewel didn't shine or the earth didn't surrender its stone or grain on time. Point out to me the rock you fell upon and the wood on which they crucified you. Strike for me into fire the old flint the ancient lanterns, the whips lashed upon those wounds throughout centuries. Show me blood bright hatchets. I come to speak through your dead mouth. Thank you. I love having that in the front of your book because I think it's what you're doing. Uh, not always dead mouths, but through others' mouths, and I think that's really what poetry is doing. Do you hear us okay? Yeah? I, I think, um, you know, uh, the great poet Marie Ponzo is among us, so I just want to be sure she's hearing us. Uh, I think I've never really, I don't think, met a poet who isn't trying to speak for, for others, at least some of the time, uh, and for people who couldn't speak for themselves, oftentimes, mm -hmm. um, or who you feel that about, you know. But um, when you read, I've seen you, we work together at Drew University, so I've seen Patrick read in different, on different occasions, something formal like this, or something where you're helping to get something going uh, or to um, announce students' names who are going to read at that time or something like that. So I've seen you in different degrees of formality or, or not. And I think you have such a gift of of really using your body. For, I know you must hear this all the time, but really 
the, the whole body comes into Pat's poetry, uh, and not just the voice. And that's, that's something like, I suppose, we might be used to a great actor doing, but it isn't every poet who can even aspire to that. And it's a wonderful gift, I think. I, um, can I say something? Of course you can. <laughs> so Kwame Dawes says, uh, he talks about the sound of a drum and that the striking of the drum, the moment that you strike it, the, the attack, is like a consonant. And as the, when the drum rings, those are like the vowels of, of language. So he likens language to making drums. My buddy Roger just told me this last night. I think it's brilliant. Um, what I think also is fascinating about that, um, about that too is that um, in terms of language, the consonants are mostly made here, up in the mouth. And so those become the sort of the percussion and the metronomic sorts of uh, sounds in a line or in a poem. And that ringing of the drum, doom, the vowels, um, they become the harmonics that, that come between the percussiveness. But they also, they come literally from the body in order to say them out loud. You can't say a, a vowel without ooh, ah, ee, ah, ooh. It comes from the body. And so, uh, you know, I wasn't trained as a, as a singer and an actor, but I, I think that I've always felt very, I was a dancer, I was a street dancer when I was younger. I've always felt very connected to my, to my body. And so I think that you, you're reading something um, about my own um, practices and my own engagement with art. Mm -hmm. Coming from that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. That's fascinating. I never thought of that consonant vowel thing before. But you mentioned musical instruments an awful lot in your poetry, of course. Um, drums. Oh, well, the, we just had a wonderful one, that, that amazing barrel with the tire. God, I love that. Oh. And then guitars and, mm -hmm. yeah, homemade things. Yeah. Piano is definitely piano. Yeah, the beautiful one. Maybe you read that to us later on. That's a big poem. when I was when I was young, I I think the biggest uh, reader I ever heard, or the most impressive reader I ever heard, was Dylan Thomas. Oh wow! Yeah. You ever hear recordings I of him? Have. I yeah. yeah, and I think although it's different, it, he came from a tradition, mm -hmm. the Welsh tradition of of singing and reading, and he he just he took our heads off when he came over here. You know, he just yeah. we I never heard anything like it. I'm sure there was stuff like it, but I just never heard it. But, yeah, and speaking of consonants, I mean. The way that he sort of was able to conjure sound in a poem is just, yeah. is just unbelievable. He's a real model for me in that way. Is he? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So many different styles of reading, but I, I really love, I love sound so much. It feels like it's more than half of what goes on. Were there any readers um, throughout? throughout your career, 
were there any readers? I think that it's sort of it's easy to um, perhaps remember people who are dynamic readers um, and good readers. But were there readers who were um, more pulled back that you found um, not just their poems being uh, sort of arresting, but their the performance of their poems? Being arresting? Yeah, or being able to grab your attention by being not sort of bardic necessarily, but more interior in their performance. Oh, more interior uh, and arresting in that way, you yeah. mean more? Yeah, I would think, well, hmm, let me just think for a minute. Um, There's a couple of interesting things about Robert Lowell. I don't know if you've heard him on a tape or anything. I don't anything. think I've ever heard any tapes of him read ever. Well, he was from New England, but he had gone into a southern accent somewhere along the way. It was, it was important to him. And uh, so that was one surprise when you heard him read. If you didn't know anything about him, you know, you thought he came from Boston, and mm. you know, which he did. But then he, at first, would read and I didn't hear this, but I, he talked about it in interviews. I don't know if any of you ever heard him in, in life. You did, oh, yeah. Wow. A great evening at St. Mark's Church. Oh. Uh, Ginsburg was there. Oh, yeah. And uh, Peter Orlovsky was sort of giving him a hard time from the oh. sidelines. Yeah. And uh, Ginsburg was very, um, like a supplicant. It was surprising to see, because most of us were sort of a younger, sort of hippie-ish group, sort of on the Ginsburg side of things. He got right down and he kind of kneeled in front of Lowell as he was reading. It was uh, Ginsburg. Ginsburg did. It was uh, quite a quite a sight. That's wonderful. <laughs> they, I think they became friends at the end. Yeah, that's uh -huh. beautiful. I, I heard that they went on a, a march to Washington, together, and huh. and there was a reading. And of course, Ginsburg is heard by everyone. And Lowell got up there, and there was a mic and everything. But people mm. kept saying, "We can't hear you. We can't hear you." And he said, well, I can't do anything. I can't, I could shout, but you still wouldn't hear me. It was a big, huge crowd of people, I guess. And he just didn't have that Ginsburg, you know. But the interesting thing that I was going to say is, anecdotal anyway, that he, he would read quite formally as he wrote, you know, at the beginning. And I think quite reserved. But then he went out on a reading tour in California another country in those days, you know. It was uh, very different politically and, and far geographically. And, and I think he, he, uh, he, he sensed that nobody understood a word he was saying in this very formal, very uh, um, kind of formal metrics as well as formal language and it was before life studies it was the more formal work before that and and people just didn't get it and and so he started in response to audiences talking much less formally and including the way he would read mm. but he would also stop and say something if he thought people weren't getting it so it was happening in front of people's eyes that he was changing his his style of writing, too, mm. as we found out later, you know, when he got to life studies. So the audience, 
oh, helped yes. transform exactly. the way that he saw yeah. and his the own writing. homes and the writing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a wonderful story, I right. think, or interesting story, anyway. Now, people don't think of you as somebody who performs your poems, but you do embody your poems in there, in the way that you're crafting silences in your in your lyrics. Um, but um, do you imagine yourself in, in or do you? Do you sort of think about performance at all, or an interaction with the audience? Yeah, I want to talk to the audience. I want to, I want to uh, reach the audience very much. But I don't think of myself as performing, because I've seen you know, yourself and other people who really can reach probably wide audiences. And I don't think I, I would be good at that. But I, sound is everything to me. So I want to have that, and if I've got a good mic, I'm okay, yeah. I think. But yeah. you know, yeah. as you know, if I don't, uh, it's pretty hard. Yeah. I can't. I haven't ever learned how to really project my voice, and so I need a. I need a mic. As you were saying before, you feel that probably all poets um, want to speak also for someone else, right? Who doesn't have the same capacity to speak. And that should bring us to Lucy, because <laughs> you're speaking to Lucy and speaking for Lucy. And uh... cross my fingers, you know. <laughs> yeah, she certainly spoke to me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for bringing her up. I'll read that later when we get to uh, my turn. But um, I, I was thinking when we were talking about sound and performing how. I once, when I was in Ireland, there was a, another anecdote, but there was a sign by the road that said poetry school, and it was pointing down this way, and so I said to the guy I was with, I said, let's go. I was so lonely, I was dying, you know. <laughs> so I said, let's go see the poetry school. And so we drove down this little dirt road, and it got to the ocean, and there was a few rocks piled up on each other <laughs> where you could go in and sit. And it said, poetry school. <laughs> and I thought, that is the best. I ought to just stop right here, you know, and never leave. It was, it was just wonderful. But I was thinking about the first poets, probably, they had to speak. They wouldn't have gotten the job otherwise, right? Yes, right. I mean, that was the job, I yeah. think. That's not true anymore, but I, I think it's true of some people. Yeah. yeah. So should we hear Lucy? We could do Lucy. Um, I don't know how time is. You well, me? we're going to 3.30, so um, I don't know. You think it's probably 20 minutes to read those poems or more? I don't know. I can oh. stop at 20 minutes, though. Because <laughs> we want to give Patrick a chance to, to respond to the yeah. Lucy sequence, and we have some more things to read. And to read more to us. Um, well, um, I don't know if you can hear back there. Is it okay? You, you're where you want to be. Okay. Um, this is a poem about, it's a sequence about uh, Lucy, who is a hominid, so-called, whose skeleton is approximately 3.2 million years old. You've probably heard about her. And they found her skeleton in 1974. 
and she was, uh, if I understand it right, um, she was one of the first early people who was able to stand up and walk. And for me, she's very much a mother. Uh, and one thing about standing up is you can then hold your child in your arms because you're not on all fours, you know? And so that was one of the moving things about her, that development of humans. And um, she was found, I told you, in 1974, the Ethiopian people where she was found refer to her as Dinkanesh, which is an Amharic language term meaning you are beautiful. And they called her Lucy, the, the uh, what do you call the people who find skeletons? Uh, Anthropologists, paleontologists. People who found her uh, called her Lucy because they got back to the campground. Oh, this is an, a thing I love about this finding. And if you went to the museums or any of the exhibits, you'd see they were walking along, end of a long day, hadn't seen anything. They were looking for her, but they couldn't find anything. And then one of them saw a little glint of light out of his eye, and he turned around. And it was a bone poking up from the sand or earth or whatever it was. And they went back, and that was the beginning of the skeleton that they found. And I loved that because it must happen all the time, but you know, it's just chance, what we would call chance if he hadn't turned around. You know, somebody else would have found it later, maybe, but so chancy. And then when they got back to the, uh, campground, the radio was playing Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. This was Beatles time, so they named her Lucy from that. Um, Lucy, your secret book that you leaned over and wrote just in the dirt, not having to have an ending, not having to last. This is a quote from a song. In thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. And this is the poem again. Two hands were all you owned for food, for love. Now you own none, Lucy, nor no words, only breath marks breath marks only, nor no words. Or what do you do now, Lucy, for love, your eyes? This has a quote from, w, uh, from William Carlos Williams, my saxophrage that splits the rocks. Lucy, my saxophrage that splits the rocks, wild good mother, you fill my center hole with bliss. No one is so tender in her scream, wants me so much, not just, but brings me to be, is when I am close to death and close to life. The spider in her web, three days, 
dead on the window, Lucy. In the electricity of love, its lightning strike, or in its quiet hum in the thighs, like this little icebox here, not knowing any better, or in the dumb hum of the heater going on, little stirs in the room tone. I rush outdoors into the air you are, Lucy, and you rush out to receive me. At last there you are, who I always knew was there, but almost died not meeting. When my scraped out child died, Lucy, you hold her all the time. This one has some names of people I knew who died around this same time, this next one, and also talks about a, uh, a story of Chekhov's called Easter Eve, where there's a, a ferryman in the story whose name is Yeronim. Lucy, when the dark bodies dropped out of the towers, when Ruth died, and Grace, and Helen Ruth, and Iraq, and Iraq, and Nicolay, Lucy, when Jane in her last clothes goes across with Chekhov, you are the ferryman, the monk, Yeronim, who throws your weight on the rope. I wash my plate and spoon as carefully as a priest. Did you have a cup, Lucy? Oh God who transcends time, let Lucy have a cup. You bodhisattva here with us, you wanted to come back. I'm afraid and can't pay attention to it. I'm wild with heat and cold and my head hurts. The nine wild turkeys come up calmly to the porch to see you, Lucy. Well, when I was writing this, I began to get the idea that Lucy's name, at least, was going to be in every one of these things. Uh, I didn't have any idea about that beforehand or anything else, really. Uh, this is called My Work of Art for Lucy. It's a piece of brown wrapping paper taped to the wall over the table in this beautiful room with no pictures. First written across the top, quote, it was as if she was standing across the road waiting to see if anyone wanted to get to know her. Then taped under that, forgive my German, I'm gonna quote Rilke for one line only. Du, der du weist, und dessen weiters wissen. You, this is Roka still, you who know and whose vast knowing is born of poverty, abundance of poverty. Make it so the poor are no longer despised and thrown away. Look at them standing around like wildflowers which have nowhere else to grow. So that's Rilke. And then 
Then a Blue Panther, a 26 cent stamp from Florida for postcards. Then a catalpa leaf curling from its huge curving stem, curving rather from its huge curving stem. The leaf a little broken in its passing from the west unto the east. And the note, I found this leaf on my way to the post office. Then Lucy, you, hominid, sapiens, sapere to taste, be wise. Your skeleton standing around like a wildflower. Lucy, what you want, that I will do. To hear you now, your poem, but you need nothing. The deer and the wild turkeys that draw close now to hear you, my life is for. In its language, your voice. I can't tell cold from heat, anxiety, dust, death, no, not even dust. So I don't know. Let's finish it up. Okay, we'll finish it up. It hadn't got too much further to go. Your picture, brown museum hair, brushed the way they brush it there, brow lit from inside, intelligent eyebrows, a slightly wrinkly nose, a little flat. Brown woman, I want your nose, your cheekbones of light. I was brown, I got white. Your large and friendly mouth, half open in a half smile, surprised. But Lucy, your eyes. So I gave all I had to the poor, standing around like wildflowers. Lucy, the spider moved last night and again this morning. I wonder, do you sleep and wake where you are now? Do spiders hibernate? Do they lay eggs in webs on window panes? You must know everything. Enter the sweet why, don't entreat it or question why. Whistle why, whisper why, was sweetness done to you, done unto you. What I wanted most, the mother, has come to me. Will she stay in my ear? Lucy, is it you? Still all night long, my Lucy, I entreat you. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Well, here comes another character in the last few pages of this, and his name is Martin Ramirez, and he's what we call an untaught artist. And um, I have to just say that I was looking at his work one time. He did a lot of tunnels, railroad tunnels and railroad tracks and um, landscapes around railroad because he was a railroad worker from Mexico, came to California, 
what they say had a nervous breakdown, no longer could do that work, was put into a hospital, a mental hospital in California, where he began to draw and paint. And different people in the hospital helped him and brought him uh, crayons and pencils and paper and everything he needed and gave him time. And one of the doctors particularly collected his work, and that's why we have it. Uh, and so when you go to these folk art museums and so forth, you can find his work there, Martin Ramirez. And I don't know how he got into this, but here he is. Except I love him. That could be why. You think so? People you love kind of come into the poems, don't they? Martin Ramirez, be with me. It looks, oh, this is something I heard in the gallery when I was looking at one of his paintings of tunnels. I'll start over. Martin Ramirez, be with me. It looks just like a vagina, a bystander said. Yes, it is a vagina with trains and tunnels, and like in the great cathedrals, a clitoris, a starry one, and a womb, jaunty Martin being born, Lucy, did you hear animal woman screams in the night? Were you afraid? Was it you last night? Your scream over and over as you give birth? How did you pray, Lucy? You were a prayer, your hands and toes. When writing came back to me, I prayed with lipstick on the windshield as I drove. Newton made up with the world. He had already turned himself into gold. He was already there. Skeleton woman, in, down, over, around. Blessing from the Old English, blitzian. Its root is the same as for blood. My head is at your window, Lucy, at your glass. But we offer nothing but money now. We beam it to each other, near and far. But you are my skeleton mother. I bring you coffee in your cemetery bed. This morning I miss most of all you, Martine, and her who, when you were born, looked and blessed your beauty. Lucy, when you are with me, I feel the atoms racing everywhere in this old oak table, in the eight-pointed double star spider, and in the starry rippling all around us. Skeleton woman, guardian, death woman, Lucy, here, a picnic cornbread, here an orange, with Martine and me at the lip of the Earth's surface world. So, that's that. Um, well. <clears throat> so, I, um, last semester, this spring, actually, I first taught this course in, um, in the fall semester to undergraduates. It's about digital remix, of all things. Um, and then I taught it again as a graduate seminar. 
in, the, in this past spring. The Lucid Poems is one of the assignments that I assigned in this digital remix course. So for the remix, the remix, for those of you who might not be familiar with the concept, essentially remix is gathering random or disorganized data, or even organized data for that matter, and then reorganizing it into another form. Any kind of data, it can be sound or, or whatever. This is how I've almost always composed poems because I came out of a music production background. I thought about gathering data, gathering bits, and figuring out ways in which these different pieces fit together. Reading the Lucy poem gave me this window, I think, into what many, if not all of Jean's poems are about. Um, or the process anyway, and that I think it's about collecting bits. And it's very clear, she was sort of, she was making the commentary as she was going along, but there's a quote from a psalm. Um, there's a catalog of the dead. Um, there's personal memory. There's an elegiac address. These are not necessarily things that you will find next to one another, but here in this, in this long poem um, inspired by Lucy, she draws them together and rearranges them. Um, I don't mean to talk about you in third person right in front of Eugene. No, I'm, I'm happy to. <laughs> um, I actually had never heard of Joseph Cornell before Jean had told me about, about his work. And I'm fascinated now yeah. with his boxes. Yeah. And I, I see a, a, a real correlation between what Cornell is doing in terms of collecting these bits and arranging them in boxes and what you're doing in, in poems. Do you, is that, do you see that parallel as well? In some Not ways? until this minute. Okay. <laughs> but I'm very happy with it. Um, is this still working? I'm very happy with it. Uh, I love him, as you know. And uh, is the mic working? Yes. I get you. <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, love him, and but I've never thought of doing that, but uh, on purpose, you know, mm. like he did. But you, you know, he did it first, little brother. Mm. That's so sweet. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I guess that would be a wonderful reason to make anything. Yeah. yeah. I'm so happy to know that you love him so much too. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing that I love about that sequence too is that the book has um, it's elegiac also the book I mean it has the elegy for Reginald Shepard and in there too and so this long sequence ends a, a, a book that goes in and out of elegy this is a long sequence that ends up addressing the dead and it's the oldest dead that we know in some ways the oldest standing dead that that we know and I love that um, I love that, that pairing, it, you know, and what, what is it that paleontologists do? They excavate, they, 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 dig, up, they dig up the remains. Um, I think poets are, are trying to do that also. Um, and in fact, in DJ culture, one of the things that you learn is, is the art of digging, which is going into record stores and, and finding sounds and records that nobody has, has, sound, has, has found before, right? 
Um, and anyway, so, the, on, so on so many different levels, that, that long poem, I mean, it, it's just a moving poem anyway in terms of uh, a both personal and long historical meditation on motherhood, on being in the world, on death, on living, on making art for that, for that matter. Um, on so many levels, that, that poem is, um, it's beautiful to me. Um, and it, I, I think that if people told, if, if I told people that, that your work, that I find these parallels between your work and mine or the way that I think about art, I think if people heard us, people saw us walking together in the street, they'd be like, what an odd couple they are. Yeah. In my mind, I think we make the most sense, actually. Yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. yeah. I feel the same <laughs> way. I'm so happy. Well, because I do think when I'm reading through this book of yours, which I have here, Bone Shepherds, it's really a sequence, too. I feel mm. that, you know. I don't know if you've thought of it that way, any of you, but it, it really may partly come from being in such a... Your uh, family's part of diaspora, and uh, you're drawing on a lot of that, and your travels back, and your travels back here, and all that, and that's a little further back in my life, but I wonder, it, it, quite a few generations back, but I wonder if part of that is maybe unconsciously even wanting to bring things together mm -hmm. a little bit. Absolutely. Like making a box for your younger brother or, or putting things in it, even if it's not a, not a, a pointed to sequence, things that do kind of, I felt that reading your book a lot, yeah, yeah this book. Yeah. And I feel it when you read, mm. you know, from music to speech too. That's another uh, kind of historical sequence, isn't it? Yeah. For everyone, I yeah. think. But with you, it's very, very alive, mm. you know, and I love that. So I, I I wonder if this happens to you, because what happens to me, and there's poets in the room, I'm sure I'd love to hear. Uh, when I was writing the Lucy thing, I was very fortunate, because I was in one of these artist colonies for probably a month or something. I had nothing to do at all. And so, except uh, if I could write something. But um, with that kind of silence, or any kind of silence we can find, you know, or, or a little space, uh, maybe in the summer vacation or something like that, um, I wonder if things come to you the way, I just, I just sort of sat there and things come, you know, by themselves. If you can have that kind of quiet, sometimes that will happen. It doesn't always happen, but this poem, that was, that was happening, you know. I was just mm -hmm. copying down. Wow. Really wow. great, copying wow. down what I heard. So, so a lot of it came just as it was, because I've seen you sort of, I've, I've, I'm confessing here that I've peeked over your shoulder while you're kind of composing on your yellow pad, and I see you arranging and crossing out. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. But, but for this poem, it, it, it seemed to it sort of let, it, let itself out. Pretty much as is. You know, I had to look up some stuff, but I even, I even went to the house and used the phone. I didn't have a cell phone. I went up to the house of the uh, writer's colony and, and called up a friend, mutual friend of ours, Anne Marie Macari. I said, 
I can't stop writing this thing. I said, I've been depressed, but I've never been manic. You think I'm in trouble? You know, I was going day after day, you know, writing this thing. She said, you know, she said, isn't it funny when something good happens, people think they've done something wrong. Yes. <laughs> and she said, it sounds like you've got a little more to do on that poem. Why don't you go on back and do it? And she said, just don't operate any heavy machinery. <laughs> You can hear her saying this. I can totally hear we her saying We both know that. her, you know, in common. But it was just amazing. I, I don't usually certainly get things like that, but I wondered if you do sometimes. Occasionally. Occasionally. Yeah. And it does, I mean, teaching doesn't allow for a whole lot of silence because no. most of that quiet time is being used to think about my students yeah. and, yeah. and so forth. But, yeah. you know, I just, I just told you I moved to Philadelphia yeah. about a month and a half ago, and has a different quality of silence than living in New York City or yeah. other places that I've been, and um, there's a kind of, I don't know, you just settle into a, into a place and images arrive. I think part of it is that the silence allows me to uh, access deep memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that the deep, this deep memory is whole. Sometimes this deep memory is, f- is fragmented, but it's, mm-hmm. they're intense fragments, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I have, a very, I have a very intimate relationship with silence. Yeah, um, I would have thought so. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to help an artist, give them some silence. That's huh? it. That's the thing. Yeah. That's why they had that poetry school down by the <laughs> down by the ocean, a couple of rocks. It's got the waves, but nothing much else. <laughs> oh God. So Patrick, maybe you could read a couple more of your beautiful yeah, poems for us. Sure. Yeah. Not sure which ones I gave you, David, so I'm just gonna start picking from the book. I wonder, maybe I'll read a couple of poems that I don't, I don't normally read out loud, um, and that are, and they're, they're still quite narrative, the poems, but they're, they make more lyric leaps, and a la Jean Valentine, than, than many of my other, other poems do. So this one's called Undrowning. in, the, in Spanish, there's a there's a word called desahogarse. I learned that that word from my friend Jessica, and it sort of gave me this poem. She was going through a hard time, um, and her mom said that you have to undrown yourself. Yeah, undrowning. Who needs to be convinced of loneliness in murmurs, in the palimpsest of a few words rising out of a sentence you don't understand, unless it's whispered directly into your fingers. The rain itself isn't terrible, but sometimes I believe whole oceans are lifted in the name of some worshiped fury and dropped into our eyes mid-laugh. 
you tell me the word is desahogarse, which is to say, you've already drowned. And to undrown, you must recall how the light of Venice's lamps and the stars' long-traveled revenant burn break on the wake of a small boat, ferrying you and a couple friends. One, you now grieve. Another, an opera singer. Drunk, her hair, you remember, sweeping over the prow. If the gondolier speaks a word of English, it is yes, which is one of two words in the language to contain so many disparate categories of sadness. I mean, in the whole of one syllable, half a universe stays afloat, sinks, swims back up with too much liquor or wine in its blood, and in drowning, or its opposite, a life doesn't flash before your very eyes. What if I say the multitudes of ghosts put to sleep by centuries of conquerors awaken in your veins, and you must answer them with a grief that is neither famous nor deadly. It's even simpler than that. One Saturday night, you sit under the slant ceiling of your cramped kitchen in a winter that's lasted a few extra days into spring, doing precise damage to a bottle of coconut rum that will pay you four times back. You turn up the sad tangos your lovely shit-talking father used to sing, he who could dream in the steel language of flight, and you weep. Your lamentation counts you squarely among the living. Querida, I'm sorry a beautiful young man you once laughed with under the near blaze of a foreign sky while an opera singer slammed her melismatic oz into the stone and glass of a city sinking into its shallow glacial canals is dead. We can't call up all the wreckage of generations. Do not forget you are witness to ascent. Tonight, sleep well. When solitude calls, it doesn't mean to kill, but offers the kind of sight one earns when you've lain a long time still. It's a beauty. And gosh. Let me read um, Despedida Ardiente. I was teaching at an MFA program in the you know, you can teach a line, you can teach meter, you can teach rhythm, you can teach form. There's a lot of things that you can teach. The hardest thing to teach, and maybe it's impossible to teach, is how to make a poem blaze, you know? Um, and so this is my urging towards my students to make it blaze. Despedida ardiente. Dear feverless, dear poets, dear lovesick ones now cured, there are bloodless battles to be won, 
But stout your maw with your finest curses. Yap your demons to their proper graves. O oh, meek weepers, asymmetries, be kissed. Let the trash stack in the kitchen. Keep your lover a full day from work. O oh, sweet neglect, O oh, nectarine. Those bitter pits are meant for more than nibbling. There is a holy jump off. There is a funky genesis. There is a reason love and jive kind of rhyme. You oblong fruit, not three days ripe. Somewhere in you lies the science of typhoons, a dream of strings. Oh, dirty word. Oh, first murder. Oh, cocoa butter whiff on a smoky bus. There are theories we're made of mostly nothing but motion. Oh, gap-toothed guitar. Oh, sound hole, you faraway drum, you slang mouth blessing, you long chime, you chamberless sextet. Let me leave you with a few last words. When mad dogs break chains to run at you, charge back. Bear your very teeth. No monster, I promise, outruns you. Whack them on the ankle with a stick. Chase the bastards down. Listen, this vertigo, this wreckage, this bad ballad straining the thickest tendons of your legs. Oh, darling sleepers, may you wake in the middle of the night to strange sounds. You champions of laughter, all you have to do is speak simply. Your business is the truth. Your heart's catastrophe is just a little of history's twisted bull work. If there were not a sky within your chest worth breaking, believe me, you would have stopped all this singing by now. Yay. That's so great. Thanks. Well, there's certainly a lot of music in that and <laughs> instruments and rhythm. Wisdom. <laughs> oh boy, it's great. I guess I could tell a story about that poem. Um, I was teaching at the University of Texas at Austin at the time, and um, one of my colleagues was doing a project in which um, he was getting several different people to record um, "Song of Myself," every line. I think there might have been six or eight of us who did it separately. I went into the studio and for one day, in, in one session, I performed Song of Myself out loud, all the way through. I took, I didn't take any breaks, I, but uh, you know, I would flub a line occasionally. Um, it's remarkable how, how easily his long lines sort of fly. Um, but you can imagine the kind of physical intensity, the physical intensity um, of doing that poem, I was exhausted. I think I was, I fell asleep by 8.30. Um, but I woke up at 1.30 in the morning and this poem came out. Yeah, it was, it, so the, that's one poem that did sort of come out and I know that like the, the musculature of, uh, and the spirit of sort of, of Song of Myself was in that poem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure he's glad. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs>
Wow. That's wonderful, though, about how the spirit and the body are one, and you can get into someone else's spirit and body. I'm going to go home and do that. Yeah. <laughs> See if I can get something, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. We could all do that. Yeah. I have a theory that poetry does on maybe molecular or sub-molecular levels, and maybe there's research already done about this, that it changes the body. Yeah, oh, I think Do you so. believe that, yeah, too? Yeah, I do, yeah, yeah. Like music does, mm. right? Yeah. Oh, I think so. I suppose that's one reason why we love it so much, you think? I mean, even when we're little kids, we love it so much. Mm -hmm. Poetry. Come in and change our bodies and mm -hmm. make us feel better. Yeah. 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 You know, people always talk about um, Emily Dickinson as being Emily Dickinson and Jean Valentine. Is did Walt Whitman play a part in your in your reading life? Does he continue to? I mean. They're always sort of posing them apart as these kind of binaries, right? Emily Dickinson and, and Walt Women. I think that's crazy. Yeah. They say he's the man and she's the woman. <laughs> yeah. No, I think they're very much, I think they're very much, uh, I mean, they're called the mother and father of our poetry and all that, but I mean, that doesn't do any harm, I suppose, just to think we have one, but, you know, or two, but I, I don't, I don't see that myself, you mm. know, I think. I think they were both going right to the heart of, of what, what was going on and coming out different, but they were both, I mean, I suppose it would be like, like thinking, um, quite what I want to say, but like thinking men and women are different, and we are, but we are so much the same, you know, much more the same, and I, I also think, you know, they don't sit, sit out to do what they do, they just do what they can, mm -hmm. right, just mm -hmm. like all the rest of us. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think Dickinson just did what she could, and he did what he could, yeah. and, and they were called differently, but I don't see them as opposed to each other at all, right. I feel like they give us ourselves and lucky us, mm -hmm. lucky us, you know, it's, it's just beautiful. Mm -hmm. What if we only had one of them? <laughs> Wouldn't be as rich. Right. But, That's right. but I think that kind of opposition is silly, don't you? Yeah. I think it makes everything smaller instead yeah. of what we got. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, we could have only had one of them, but somebody had to dig up Emily's poems out of the drawers That's right. and make sure we got them. Right. For sure. yeah. Yeah. She, didn't, she didn't try to get them to us That's right. very much. Yeah. Well, At the beginning, I guess, she tried to. On the other hand, she didn't throw anything away. That's true. You know, I think... Uh, and she probably put, there was probably a great deal of, of feeling involved in the way she strung the poems together into those little booklets. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
So did you want to share some new poems with us? Uh, you said that you might. Well, I have a couple. Um, were sewn together. Mine are stuck together with white out. <laughs> Pull them apart. All the, all the part I take out and, and write something else over. You know what white out is? <laughs> I don't know if in this age you use it anymore, but <laughs> that's my sad state anyway. Um, let that one go for the moment. This is a, a strange one. Uh, they're all strange, right, to me, anyway. They're strange when they come to us, don't you think? Mm -hmm. If we're lucky. <laughs> they are. Well, this, this is called for Robert Lowell, who was a teacher uh, of many of ours of my age and younger. And I'll just read it. I looked, and there he was, my father in poetry, my guide to the underworld. I was shy to speak. He said, here, take my hand, we cross here. And I said, what you went to earth for, did you find it? He was tall in a blue shirt. He pointed across the street. Over there, he said, that was the last time I saw Delmore. And I should have said at the beginning, Delmore Schwartz is, was a good friend of his and died before Lowell did. So that's how he came into that. And I don't know if you read him anymore. You, you do? Yeah. I, I think he's wonderful. And, uh, I also love his name. So, you know, both those things got him in there. I, I wanted the sound of Delmore as much as I wanted. Not as much, but also. You know, it seemed to me that you were describing a poem, uh, a dream. Yeah. It felt yeah. like you were talking about a dream of being with Robert Lowell and yeah. holding his hand and, and yeah. doing that. Yeah. Maybe that's some of the, the oddness of. of uh, it, it is odd, isn't it? Yeah, I think between dreams and poems, I'm not sure where one ends and the next begins. You know, for me anyway. I. I, the three words I often mix up are poem, memory, and dream. Yeah, they that's They right. slip into each other's categories. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever read that book, Memories, Dreams, Reflections? Yes. That's another. I love that one, too. I'll read one more. It's uh, called Song. I was at this, oh, this, uh, this has a little back reference, which isn't going to be in the poem, but since we're sitting here together, uh, it's um, the, another untaught artist. Um, gee, what's his name? Finster. I don't know if you know Finster. Howard Finster. And uh, there's also an echo poem. You'll hear it. Uh, uh, um, uh, Stevie Smith, very famous line of hers. I was not... I was not waving, but drowning. It's very famous, so I thought I could echo that without people being lost. Song. I was asking pardon. Who am I? Of them who I am, pardon. Of the slow wearing down of the window, the sun, I was asking forgiveness. Of the crocodile, 
that good hider of the heron, that good feeder, and of Christ the pelican. Christ said, over a thousand pages of scripture, and I was not reading, but dreaming. It's the same right now, he said. He just stood there. I, I was not painting, but watching the animals. I was not copying, but dreaming. Over 1,000 newborns in this clearing, we started to lick them clean, dreaming, one by one. So, Thank you very much. Thank you. Patrick, did you want to say anything on a first hearing of? We have more. Whoa. <laughs> uh, um, well, I was thinking about both of I was thinking about the, the Neruda epigraph in my in my book and yeah. and both of us have a relationship to the dead, you know, yeah. and not in a, necessarily in a macabre way, but in a way about how to think about who we are in history and where we go. I think even in your in your book you talk about you trouble time also, right? This is, um, time and matter run into one another and yeah. and the straight arrow of time gets confused in your yeah. in your poem and so if, if time um, is reoriented or redefined um, then so does our, our relationship to death has to has to right like yeah. and so the the, de the dead like Lowell in this particular poem is allowed to come back and to and, and instruct us yeah. where to cross um, yeah. The other thing that I love about about your poems is that um, some of the some of the matter that that um, remains after I read the poem are questions, um, like who is the cheetah, or what is the cheetah? You know the you know, um, the space cheetah in your in your book, and uh, this is an exercise that I ask my beginning poetry students to do all the times. So don't say anything authoritative about a poem right away. Ask questions. Mm -hmm. And so with your poems, I find myself with the questions, and I'm able to sort of hold on to those questions for a while. And they're often very interesting questions about how to live, about time, about space, about, about the dead. Um, they, they invoke other lyric lines um, um, for me, too, mm -hmm. you know? Um, do you find that's true when you're writing too, that you're asking questions, maybe when you finish something, like where did that come from? Yes. Yeah, I'm sure you do, because yes. I can hear it in your poems. Yeah. I, I showed this Lowell thing to somebody, and they said, oh yeah, he's showing you how to cross this, where to cross the street or something like that. And I said, yeah, I was surprised when he said that. And it was like, I, I think it sort of spooks them or something. But I was surprised when that came, when I was writing it. Mm. You know, mm. uh, how come? <laughs> you know, but it sounded okay. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I think when yeah. I'm having a hard time writing, yeah. I don't, the questions are happening, but I don't hear them yeah. or I am refusing them, exactly. right? Yeah. And so, but yeah. when, when I have the silence that you were talking about yeah. earlier, yeah. It's like I can make space for the, exactly. for the questions yeah. And, yeah. and the unknown yeah. and un yeah. the uncertainty of the poem, you know? Oh, 
you and I need is a Duino castle. Yes. <laughs> you and I and everybody else here. Can we buy one? Let's go get Let's one. Let's buy one. <laughs> Just get quiet for a while. Yeah, and then all the terrible angels will arrive. It's oh, true. Oh, that's true. They will. <laughs> and we'll say hello. <laughs> so maybe we can open things up to the audience and uh, they can begin to participate out loud. <laughs> Anybody want to ask a question or make a comment? Or? We have to go to the mic, right? Um, yes. That's going to... Thanks. Yeah, my question is, why do you say the poem changes the body. Mm. I always thought the poem changes probably the mind, the spirit, maybe the soul, but it definitely gets you away from the body. Mm. And I like mics because in a mic, with a mic, through a mic, the poem even gets away from the human voice. It, it, it gets into a life of its own and stands in the room by itself, away from the poet, because ultimately the poet is also a body, is part of this earth. And the poem gets us away from all of that. Mm. So that's why I was wondering, I'd never heard that the, poet, mm -hmm. the poem changes the body. Yeah. So that's my question. It's a, it's, it's a theory that I have that the poems change the body. Um, I know that when I've gone to poetry readings, the poems are really good, I, f I feel something in my body. There's no, I don't have a description for it. Emily Dickinson said that it feels like the top of her head comes off, right? Um, and I, she used the body, she didn't compare it. It, it feels like the sky, it feels like, it feels like something in her body is happening. And for her, the, the top of her head is coming off. For me, I don't know. I, I, sometimes my hair stands up or yeah, sometimes, Sometimes I've, I've felt so moved by a poem that I, by a poem that I want to jump up and run. I, I've felt that many, many times. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's true or not, but I, there's something about it. I think, I think also that deep memory is, resides. I think that they're, they're, I, I believe that geneticists are going to find out that deep memory gets handed down across DNA. And if that's true, then what role does intense language like poetry have in the making of the human body at the DNA level? I don't, we don't have tools to measure that yet. I'm just proposing that. Maybe somebody with $75 billion to do the research. <laughs> but I, I put the question out there. Um, I suspect it. Um, and I think it also goes back to something that Jean said that early on, poetry is a, as a written art is much younger than poetry as a bodily and performed art. It was meant to be in the body. It was meant to be performed and shared in a room full of bodies. Many times those bodies were dancing. And so I think that you can't just erase that very, um, that very old and persistent tradition of, um, of the body and its relationship to, to poetry. Well, the meter is dance steps. Exactly. 
you know, yeah. and that's the fundamental aspect of the sound of poetry is meter in some way. Right. Or the notion of the of of uh, plowing a field, right? The, it, it's the the work of the body in the field, going along the yeah. along the lines. So, yeah. it's just an idea. I also think of singing the the mother singing to the baby. Oh you know, yeah, that's a very fundamental a kind of poetry. Whatever's going on, mm -hmm. I think. Excuse me, though. You go ahead. I just want to weigh in on that. I think the poem has a life of its own. Okay, Patrick. Two questions. Is it fair to ask you the Tagalog word for suddenly seized by affection? <laughs> yes, the Tagalog word for suddenly seized by affection is gigil. Spell it. G-I-G-I-L. Gigil. And pronounce the second syllable, emphasize. Uh, it's the first gigil. gigil. No, it's the first syllable. Gigil. 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 Yeah. Yeah, so if you see a... I just saw I just saw a video of my goddaughter last night, and so I felt a giggle towards her, and she's yeah. nakaka giggle. But the L isn't pronounced like an L in English, right? It's close. It's close. It's, it's I mean, there might be a slight might be a slightly different. Yeah. Okay. And the other question for you is: when you when you read that poem, how to make a poem blaze? <laughs> I love this line. Steal it. When a bad dog bark, when a bad, when, do, when bad dogs break chains to want you, bite back? Uh, when mad dogs break chains to chase you, charge back. To change, okay. I, love, I just revised it. That's I said, pretty good, though. To want <laughs> On one hearing. Bite back. I wrote bite back. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. So we'll use that. And I can always look that up yeah. to cite it. Great. Um, Jean, I was very moved by our meeting when I spoke to you about having been studied with Marie Ponceau. And I, you, you said, I'm not worthy. You did that gesture of, I'm not worthy. You were so pleased. And then I said, I'll give her your regards. And after I said that, I thought, well, when in hell am I going to see Marie? And then you said to me, she's right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so that was really a great moment for me. Um, Chekhov is somebody I've been studying. I, I mentioned to Marie, I'm studying with Professor Tom Bird, who's a doll. He's been at Queens College, I think, since the 1950s. A long time. And still teaching. And we studied short stories of Chekhov. So I remember there was a there was an, a, a short story about a ferry, ferry boat. Do you happen to remember the, the, the story? What is that? Easter Eve. Easter Eve. I may have lost my mind. It's called Easter Eve. Easter Eve. Great. Eve. Yeah. Thank you so much. Wonderful story. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else want to make a comment or ask a question? Uh, Gina, if, if you could, I'd like to um, ask you to talk a little bit about how your work might have evolved 
in a way that in Lucy, for example, you have these very small intersections of awareness that the speaker of the poem that you have of, of a moment of a relationship with Lucy. And they're so simple. And yet in that simplicity, you find uh, such poignancy that I wondered if that type of a trained eye was something that you found over the course of your writing career, uh, an ability to distill or find the more critical, essential bits and pieces and pair away more of the unimportant parts of a poem. In other words, did, did you find that your work became uh, sparer, more essential, in, if, if that's clear? Or is it, is it poem by poem maybe different? Does that make sense? Um, I think I started out more uh, sort of saying everything uh, in a more grammatical way than I do now. And I've noticed over the years I take more out, you know. I might write a lot and take a lot of it out and ask my friends, you know, if it still makes sense. But that's more a way I work now. And I've also come to love sequences because I might write something and it doesn't amount to much, but then if I put 12 of them together, it might, you know. So that's something I came to later. Yeah, but I'm not so big on sense as I used to be. And I think it was really being able to be with other poets and read more also. Uh, and boredom. Uh, boredom can be your friend. <laughs> you know, if you just are writing something that you've written before or you've seen written before, you might not have any interest in it, so you might go somewhere else, you know? Yeah. Even if it's what you feel. Right. But it doesn't have any life for you. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, it's not that it isn't true, but it isn't alive for you anymore. And so I don't mean just to put something in a new way for newness's sake. But that's a, another thing I would try not to do, because that's boring too, uh, but, or can be when I try it sometimes. But just to kind of feel your way and see how much you really need, you know. And then I couldn't live without my poet friends, because then I asked them, you know, do you think this is there or not? You know, uh, you know. Okay, thanks. Is that kind of yeah, an answer? That's, that's, <laughs> yes, very much. Also, if I could just add, they did do a study, uh, I don't know how, if it cost 75 million, but uh, once you've been in the woods for three hours, your body physically changes chemically. Huh. Oh. So I'm sure the same would be true of of reading poetry. Yeah, that's great to know. Wow. Please. I don't like these things. <laughs> Microphones. But I love your presentation, and it's really an honor to be here and hear you both talk about writing poetry and reading so much poetry. It was wonderful. 
And I agree when I, I have only been writing poetry for about seven years and, you know, like not full time, but a lot. And when I write, I feel the same thing with the spirit and the soul, you know, that is, is there, that was in your Lucy poem and in your dog uh, poem. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. It's wonderful getting out of the body. I don't know what it is. It's supposedly, like other artists tell me that, that happens when they paint a painting or whatever, you know, they're, I don't know, because I can't do anything else, you know. I can walk and my spirit, I feel, you know, my soul is happy when I'm walking, but it's not like, you know, I don't know, that nitty gritty, you know, deep down soul changing and it comes out on the page, which is so exciting and I don't know what's gonna come out on the page. You know, so that is, that's the thrill, you know. Yeah. I wish I could do more, but thanks for giving me the idea of the sequence thing, because I never did that. I think I might try that. That Lucy is so wonderful, the way you brought her to life, you know. It was, and when, when you read the first piece, I said, oh no, you know. But, but as you went on to each other piece, I said, oh, this lady has something going, you know. Thank you. You know, it's interesting because if you read other sequences that can get you kind of uh, maybe towards it. I, I was reading the Orpheus sonnets when I was writing Lucy, and I didn't sit down to do that. It just happened. But I think it's like, you know, uh, it can help you if you read other people's sequences or whatever you're looking for, you know. It, it seems like you were saying about Whitman, too. It, it can, can help you out without being directly imitative in any way, you know, but just like soul to soul. Yeah. <laughs> we are, we are. <laughs> Which one are you? <laughs> uh, I'll be in. Okay. <laughs> No, it's so much fun because we didn't get the chance to do this before. It's just I've admired you from that part of the room, and it's so much fun to do this. Thank you, David, for asking well, us to read together. Thank you for coming. It's been a real pleasure, I'm sure, for, for everyone. So our time is up. Um, so we'll stop for this afternoon, and um, we'll do something like this in the fall. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.